You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, your word says that on this one will you look, he who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at your word. And we pray this morning that as we come to your word that you would teach us to tremble at it, to love it, to obey it, to bow before it and to submit our lives to it in order that we might be sanctified by your truth because your word is truth. And we pray that it would have its way in our hearts this morning as we look at this text in Acts 27, that you would be glorified through this and do your work in your people by the power of your word. We thank you for this in the name of the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, something that is of kind of interest to me, or at least curious to me, is to listen on the news, on the radio, on television, to how people talk about their personal faith. Just as an exercise, since we're in the constant 24-hour news cycle, and since we're obviously in a 365-day-a-year, four-year election cycle, when everybody's always running for some office, We don't get any break from that. It's interesting to listen to how people talk about their personal, quote-unquote, personal faith. They don't use the term religious conviction. And you know why they don't use the term religious conviction? Religious conviction is a toxic term. You see, when you talk, when, when you say the word religious to somebody, you know what pops into most people's mind, at least in the eyes and the minds of the general population? You say the term religious, they're thinking in their mind a wild-eyed, radical, fundamentalist, theocratic wingnut. That's what they're thinking. And when you use the term conviction, what does conviction communicate? Conviction communicates a strong belief, right? Something that you're willing to die for. And both of those are taboo in our culture. Our culture is very, quote-unquote, tolerance. We tolerate everything except for intolerance. We're very tolerant, we're very pluralistic, and people don't mind if you believe certain things, and you have your own beliefs, just don't pretend like your beliefs are actually true. You can believe anything you want as long as you don't believe that what you believe is actually believable. Did you catch that? Some of you are saying, I don't believe, I understand what you just said. And the worst combination in the eyes of the world is to have firm Conviction, something that you really honestly believe is true, that is informed by a religious morality or some sort of a religious ethic. So they don't use the term religious convictions. Instead, the way the term faith is used is not in the sense of having a religious conviction. Instead, the word faith is used because faith is meaningless. You notice that? People talk about faith. That's my personal faith. Helps me to get through the day. Helps me to feel better about myself. Helps me to get over the pain. It helps me to deal with the day-to-day activities. It's only my personal faith. It's absolutely meaningless because you know that as you listen to people on the news and on television talk about their personal faith, you are almost utterly convinced that 99.9% of them have no living relationship with God through Jesus Christ whatsoever. So faith to them does not mean what it means to you and I. Faith to them is used in the sense of a make-believe world. Right? That's my personal faith. You saw this, and I don't mean to be political at all, but you saw this in the uh, presidential debates in 2004 between George W. Bush and John Kerry when asked about the, re- the 
religious convictions in the faith because Kerry claimed to be a Catholic and George Bush claims to be a born-again Christian. When asked about how their religious convictions or their faith influences their politics, you heard two totally different answers. On the one, it said, of course I govern and I use my religious faith influences everything that I do and all the decisions that I make. And on the other hand, you had a candidate who said, my faith is my faith, but I will not allow it to influence my convictions about homosexuality, gay marriage, or abortion. Right? You can have a faith. It's not the same as a religious conviction. It's kind of your own little make-believe world. It's how things would be when I just sort of zone out and I go off into my little fairy tale land, my little feel-good place. That's my faith. Or faith is used in the sense of being wishful thinking. Now, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that's fine. Just don't pretend that it's actually true. Just don't honestly think that anything should come of it. That's your faith. That's your wishful thinking. You think Jesus is the Savior? That works good for you. That's your wishful thinking. You kind of wish these things would be true. You have a faith that there's a heaven. That's what we wish for. That's how the world uses the term faith. Or it's used as in the sense of being a placebo. Helps you get through the day. It strengthens you. It kind of encourages you. If that's your crutch, if that's what you need to get through life, then that's your faith. That's that's your sort of wishful thinking, your little fairy tale world, your make-believe world, your placebo. That's how the world uses the term faith. Now, I understand and I'm assuming that when all of us get together here on a Sunday morning, you understand that's not how we use the term faith. It doesn't mean any of that to us. At least it shouldn't. It's interesting even to listen to some Christians because we tend to sort of slip into talking about faith in those terms. We need to understand what the term faith really is and how it influences our lives. In the Scriptures, when the, when the Word of God talks about faith, it uses it in two different senses. First of all, the Word of God uses it in the objective sense, as in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And faith there means not a belief or a trust or a confidence. Faith there refers to a body of doctrine, a delivered truth, the apostles' teaching, these tenets of the faith for which we fight, for which we die, for which we labor, which we believe, which we hold dear, that is the faith objectively that is once for all delivered to the saints. Then the Scriptures use the term faith in a subjective sense, as in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace we have been saved through faith. That is not that we have been saved through a list of doctrinal points, Not that we have been saved by a body of doctrine that is delivered or by the apostles' teaching, but that salvation comes to us through the faith that we exercise and the belief that we place and our confident trust in someone or something, namely what somebody did for us on our behalf, objectively and subjectively. So when we talk about faith in Christian circles or in Christian terms, biblically, when we gather together here, what we're really talking about is a belief in the promise of God. A belief in the promise of God. Now do you notice how both the subjective element and the objective element are combined in that statement? We have a faith. That is, my faith is my belief. That's the subjective element. In what? The promise of God, which is the objective element. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul uh, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul meant in Acts chapter 27 when he says, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. What is that? It is a belief in the promise of God. That's what saves us. The promise of God is that Christ died for sins, that He rose again, and that He gives eternal life to all who will believe upon Him. That's the promise. And so you reach out and you embrace Christ, and you believe the promise of God, that having believed in Him, we will not perish but have eternal life. 
Turn to Acts chapter 27. We ended with this note of faith last week, and we're going to pick it up again there. Because in Acts chapter 27, the Apostle Paul expresses his confidence and his belief in the promise of God. And then for the rest of the chapter, we see how that belief and how that faith acted. It wasn't just sitting back and saying, okay, I believe this is true. There was actually an, an action. There were things that Paul did. He put his faith into action. And you're going to see how those two go together. Faith, believing the promises of God, and acting upon the promises of God for the rest of this chapter. So in Acts chapter 27, I want to quickly bring you up to speed because a couple of you may not have been here for the last couple of weeks. On the back of your bulletin insert is a map. You can follow along. We are looking in Acts 27 at the voyage of the Apostle Paul from the city of Caesarea, which is on the coast of the land of Israel, over to Rome in fulfillment to the promise of Jesus in Acts 23 where he said, Paul, you've testified for my cause at Jerusalem. You're going to testify for me at Rome. And here we are almost two and a half years later. The Apostle Paul is finally seeing the next stage of his trip from Caesarea to Rome. And he is traveling on board a large grain freighter that is under the employment of the Roman Empire alongside of Aristarchus and Dr. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts. And they left Caesarea, and from the moment that they left, the winds were contrary and the storms were kicking up, and they got all the way up past Myra, and they were heading, uh, uh, determining to head across the Aegean Sea, but the storms and the winds were so contrary, so difficult, that they were forced to head south and seek shelter at the island of Crete. So you can see how the boat kind of takes a southward turn there. They get around the island of Crete and they get into a harbor which was not really suitable for wintering in. And Paul could obviously kind of pick up the sentiment of the sailors and the captain of the boat who were determining to sail from that harbor. And Paul warned them. He said, don't sail from fair havens. If we sail from this port, we will suffer the loss of the ship, the loss of the cargo, and the loss of our lives. But the centurion, who was the ranking official on board the ship, was more persuaded by what was spoken by the pilot and the captain than he was by Paul. So they set out from Fair Havens, just intending to go 40 short miles down shore to the port of Phoenix, where it would be really good to winter there. And they were going to spend the winter there. But after they took off, they were struck by that, that northeasterly wind, the Euroquillo that came down off the land, and pushed them right out to sea, pushed them toward an island of Clauda. They got around the island of Clauda, a brief respite from the storm, and there they began to prepare the ship just to survive. And you remember they did five essential things. They brought in the lifeboat so that the lifeboat wouldn't destroy the ship and they wouldn't be destroyed together. They pulled the lifeboat on board. They wrapped the ship, wrapped the ship with the cables to undergird it and, and sort of hold it together. They brought down the mainsail. They let out the sea anchor. They jettisoned the cargo. They jettisoned the ship's tackle, which was the, the large spar in the middle of the boat that held up the mainsail. And all they're hoping to do is convert this ship into a buoy. And just that that buoy will take all 276 persons somewhere toward land. And so they were lost at sea and out in the middle of that sea for 14 days. Do you see that in verse 27? 14 days. Now as we begin verse 27, having reviewed all of that, I want you to note in your notes that the, Apostles Paul's, the Apostle Paul's faith prompts him to do two things. Number one, protect the passengers. And number two, prepare the passengers. To protect them and to prepare them. So look at verse 27. When the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Now, fourteen nights is a long time to be stuck at sea. And fourteen nights and days is a long time to go without being warm, without being dry, without stopping that incessant, constant motion of the sea, without being seasick, without eating and without getting a good night's sleep. Like a mother of a newborn, 
If you've ever been a mother of a newborn, then you know what 14 nights without a good night's sleep is like, right? You say, I do that 14 nights in a row, and then I double up and get another 14 nights in a row. That's just life as a newborn, as a mother of a newborn. Can you imagine being on board that ship and only being able to doze off for a little bit at a time for 14 days as you're being tossed around at the sea? The creaking and the groaning, that's a long time to be at sea. And Luke says we're being driven about in the Adriatic Sea. The Adriatic Sea was a way of referring to everything from the island of Malta on your map eastward to the island of Clauda or to the island of Crete. It was that whole expanse in the middle was the Adriatic Sea. Luke says we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea for 14 days, and it was about midnight that the sailors began to surmise they were approaching land. Now, just a footnote here. It is 476 nautical miles from the island of Clauda, where they let down the tackle and put out the anchor and, and prepared the boat for trying to be a buoy, 476 nautical miles from there over to the island of Malta, where we find out that's the island that they landed at in chapter 28. We find that out. Um, nautical miles of 1.15 miles, as we landlubbers would reckon it. So it's a little, it's 500 over 500 miles, as we would reckon it. It would take traveling just 36 miles a day, a mile and a half an hour. It would take 13 days to go that distance, just to drift along. So it's, that's kind of how they did it. About, it was a slow drift as the wind was beating them. They slowly made their way westward from Crete across the Adriatic Sea over to the island of Malta. And Luke says about midnight they began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Now what do you think gave them the, the clue that they were approaching some land? How did they surmise this? It's midnight. You can't see anything, right? It's pitch black. They've gone 14 days without seeing the moon or the stars or anything. They're under heavy cloud cover. They have no idea where they're at. They haven't been able to navigate because they've been two weeks without seeing any kind of a heavenly body by which they might navigate. How do they surmise that they're near land when it's pitch dark outside? You can't see anything. How do you think they did it? Have you ever been near land when the waves come crashing in? And how do you know? You hear it, don't you? There's a rocky outcropping on the northeast corner of the, or northeast shore of the island of Malta. There's a rocky outcropping that today is called the Point of Cura, K-O-U-R-A. It's just next to this place called St. Paul's Bay. You know why they call it St. Paul's Bay? Not because Paul sailed past it, because Paul sailed into it. It's called St. Paul's Bay, and there's a rocky outcropping that's there to this day, and they say that when the winds come in and out of the northeast and the waves begin to beat against those rocks, you can hear the sound of that a quarter of a mile away. That's what they heard. They're sitting there just on the deck of the ship, midnight. Hey, do you hear that? Hear what? I don't hear anything. Hear that sound. It sounds like the breaking of waves. No. A little while goes by. Yeah, sure enough, that's the breaking of waves. Must be. Which direction is it coming from? It sounds like it's coming from over there. The next guy says, it sounds to me like it's coming from over there. The next guy says, it sounds to me like it's coming from over here. Well, maybe it's coming from both places. You can't see anything. But they're near land. Is that good news? Not at midnight, it's not. You know why? They don't know which direction the land is. Which way do you steer the ship? If you steer it the wrong direction, you sail past the island. If you steer it the right direction, then you might hit the crashing of the waves, but what are you going to hit? It might be the rocky outcropping. What awaits them just off the bow of the ship? They don't know. Is it a nice white sandy beach that they can lay down on and put up a little hut on? Or is it a rocky outcropping? Or are they hearing the waves crashing up against a rock cliff? And if they allow the boat to fly, uh, come full bore into the rock cliff, it's going to destroy it, and they're going to be lost to sea. They have no idea. All they can hear is the waves beating against the shore. They can hear the waves crashing, but they don't know where the land is. 
Well, they took a fathom, Luke says in the text. They let out a rope with a weight at the end of it, and they measured the depth of the water. And then they pulled it up, and it was 20 fathoms. 20 fathoms, 120 feet. And they go a little while longer, and they let out the rope again, and they measure the depth of it. 15 fathoms, that's 90 feet. And they began to surmise, well, we're approaching land, we're heading the right direction, but listen, they know this much. At the current rate, they're going to run out of water before they run out of darkness. And they want to wait until daybreak before they come crashing in on whatever it is that's ahead of them. So Luke says they let out four anchors from the stern of the boat, and they wished for daybreak. Do you feel the emotion in that word, wished for daybreak? <laughs> let out the four anchors, and then you just... Come on, light. Let's go. Come on, light. You just want the boat to stop moving or at least drag slowly enough that the light comes before the ground comes. That's what you're hoping for. Wishing for daybreak. Now look at verse 30. This is really interesting. Verse 30 says, But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, every man for himself, right? So much for captain goes down with the ship. Not in this case. Under the pretense of letting out anchors from the bow of the boat, they were letting down the ship's lifeboat down into the sea. Now here's what they would do. They had let out the, the anchors from the stern of the boat. And why is that? In order that the ship might be pointing in the general direction of land when daybreak came. And once they could see where the land was at, they would cut the ropes and allow the ship to come in toward the shore and they would steer it to the most opportune place for them to strike land at. Well, they're going to further gird up the ship and sort of keep it from moving, they're going to let out some anchors from the bow. So what they would do is they would lower the anchor down into the lifeboat and they would row the anchors out away from the main ship a ways. And they would tie the rope to the boat and they would lower the anchor out there. That way they had the ropes were sort of at an angle and they would keep the ship from moving. If you just dropped it down the front, your boat could go back and forth before the rope got taut. So they're going to row out the anchors out away from the boat and Paul says, no, 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 something's going on here. Under the pretense of letting out anchors from the bow, they let down the ship's lifeboat. They were going to escape as every man for themselves. Now what clued Paul into the fact that they were wanting to escape the ship? Did he overhear something? Or was it the fact that all of the ship's crew wanted to get into the lifeboat to row out a couple of anchors? He said, whoa, 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 why do you need 12 guys to, to, to lower an anchor? One of you should, oh no, no, it's a heavy anchor. We're just going to row out a little ways and we'll be right back, we promise. I think something was amiss there, and Paul said to Julius, unless these men stay on board this ship, you yourself cannot be saved. Now, what does Julius do? Immediately, he and his soldiers run over, and they cut the ropes to the lifeboat, and the lifeboat is gone. Now, all 276 of them are on board this ship. You know what that does? That guarantees that those sailors are going to work extra hard to make sure that this ship gets to shore, and they get to shore alive, right? Do you notice how Julius takes Paul seriously? I don't, I don't know if Paul had such drastic measures in mind as cutting the ropes to the lifeboat, but what Julius is doing is he's taking Paul at his word. He knows that whatever Paul says cannot be taken lightly anymore. Paul, Julius is convinced that Paul is convinced that an angel of his God appeared to him in the middle of the night and said, Paul, don't fear. You're going to stand before Caesar, and I've given the lives of all of these men into your hands. Julius now knows that had they heeded Paul's advice when he first gave it, that they would still be back in fair havens wintering the storm. And Julius now knows that the Apostle Paul, when he speaks, is utterly convinced, he's utterly convinced that he speaks as a prophet or a spokesman from God, especially on the basis of the revelation that he had received. And so he takes Paul's word very seriously. And in cutting the ship's lifeboat off, he commits his life 
Paul's life and the lives of the other 275 passengers on board that ship to that ship and to the Apostle Paul. That shows you to what degree Julius had come to trust the Apostle Paul. That shows you to what degree he respected him. That he was willing to jettison what he could have easily seen as his only hope at salvation, his only hope at being saved from the boat. He was willing to let that go because Paul told him, if we don't all stay on board this ship, you yourself cannot be saved. And here's the question for the day. This is a deep theological question. Here it is. I want you to ponder this. I want you to ponder. Uh, actually, I was going to say I want you to ponder it all afternoon, but I'm going to give you the answer before we leave. Why did the Apostle Paul say this, or how could the Apostle Paul say this? Had not the angel told Paul the lives of all 276 people would be spared? You're going to Rome, and I've given you the lives of everybody that is traveling with you. How then can Paul say, if these men leave, you cannot be saved? In other words, Julius, your deliverance from this ship and your life rests upon whether or not these men leave this ship. And if they leave, you're going to die. Couldn't Julius have said, no, 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 no. We've got the promise from God. We know that we're not going to die. We can let them go. We can let whatever is going to happen, happen. Because God has promised us that we're all going to live. Was Paul contradicting the angel when he said, if these men leave, you yourselves cannot be saved? Did Paul not believe the promise of God that all 276 were going to get safely aboard or safely onto shore? What are you going to do with that? You know what we see here? There's a couple things at play. First of all, those sailors needed to be on board that ship to protect that ship and the crew because once they left, there's no way that the rest of the passengers could have steered that ship or done anything to get that ship safely to land. They needed the skill. They needed the ability. They needed the muscle. They needed the time and the experience and the talent of those sailors in order to get safely to land. And Paul knew that. And so he told him, you let these guys go, and we're hopeless. We're on board this ship. We're hopeless. So unless these men stay on board, we cannot be saved. But there's something else going on here. We've seen this several times through the book of Acts. What we see here is the promise of God being given. That is the end. And we also see the God-ordained means by which that end might be fulfilled. So what was the end? What was the end game? What had God promised them? That all 276 of them would leave, or that would live. That all 276 of them would live. What was the means by which that promise would reach its fulfillment? All 276 staying on board that boat. See, friends, listen, this is a wonderful truth. And your life will be simpler and you'll understand a lot of complex mysteries in Scripture if you understand this. God has a revealed sovereign will, but His revealed sovereign will does not negate human agency. And many times, often in Scripture, not all the time, but most often in Scripture, it is God who works through the human agency to accomplish His revealed will. It's that way in salvation. It is God's will that all of His elect be saved. Of all that the Father has given to me, I will lose none, Jesus said, but they will come to me and I will raise them up at the last day. That is the revealed will of God. How does that happen? Through human agency, through the preaching of the Gospel, prayer, giving, missions, sharing Christ, evangelism. That's the means by which the end is accomplished. And that's the same thing you have going on in this boat. The Apostle Paul knows what the end game is, that all 70, 276 will be saved. What is the means by which they will be saved? The means will be through the human agency of those sailors doing their job and bringing that ship safely to shore. And you're going to see the same thing unfold here in the next couple of verses. So we'll leave it for now, and we'll pick that same theme up again, and we'll close with it. So first of all, the Apostle Paul's faith, he moved. He was moved because of his faith to protect the lives of the sailors. He told Julius, if these guys leave, you're toast. Now notice that Paul doesn't say, 
if these guys leave, we're all toast. Because who do we know that's going to Rome? We know Paul's going to Rome, right? But Paul says, if these guys leave, you're toast. So he moved to protect the sailors. Because Paul knew that they must all be saved, Paul employed whatever discipline and wisdom and ability he had in guaranteeing the safety of the whole crew in order that the promise of God might be fulfilled. So next thing the Apostle Paul does is he prepares the sailors. Look at verse 33. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. So between the time that they cut loose the ship, they're still waiting for daybreak because daybreak doesn't come until verse 39. While it's still night, while it's still dark, the Apostle Paul says, Look, it's been 14 days. We've been casting about at sea. We've been seasick. It's been a long time since we've eaten. You've been watching. You've been waiting. You've been despairing of life. You haven't taken any food. Two weeks is too long to go. They had a little bit of provision on board the ship. And so the Apostle Paul takes and he says, here, I want you to eat this. You need to eat this because you need strength. And so you need to have this sustenance because it's been so long since you've gone without food. Verse 34, Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is your, for your preservation. For not a hair from your head of any of you will perish. That's a beautiful promise. Unless you're balding. And you start to wonder, where was that promise for me? I'm starting to get, lose that. I'm starting to lose all the precious hairs on the sides of my head, right up here in the corner. Not a hair from your head will perish. It's a Jewish way of saying, look, God has got it all under control. He holds everything in His hand. Not a hair is going to fall from your head without His knowledge, without His providence, without His sovereignty, without His decree. Nothing can happen except God allows it to happen and wills it to happen and, and, and makes it happen or makes it happen. So you're safe. Look at that confidence, huh? I mean, for 14 days, they've been despairing. They've reached the point where all hope of being saved has been gradually abandoned. They've given up hope. Then the breakers come in and Paul says, okay, this is it. This is the fulfillment of the promise. Now it's time to eat. What does Paul know? That this ship voyage is not going to result in disaster. It's going to result in their salvation. They're going to be saved. All of them are going to live through. And Paul's preparing them for this. Okay, we've reached land. Now you need to eat. Now you need to be strengthened. So he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he gives thanks to God for it in the presence of all. Luke says 276 people on board. And he gives thanks in front of all these people, 275 people. And the Apostle Paul leads them in prayer, thanking God for the bread. You know what that does? It is a testimony to all of those people. And we know that three of them were saved, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. The other 273, I don't know about. I don't know if any of them were saved. But in the presence of all of these people, the Apostle Paul breaks the bread and he gives thanks to God for this provision before he distributes it out to everybody. Now, some people have read this and say, oh, he's having a communion service. It's not a communion service. The Apostle Paul did not lead communion services for 273 pagans and three believers. It's not a communion service. There's no wine. He's simply giving thanks to God for this, and he's taking a leadership role on board the ship. Do you notice the progression that has happened since Paul got on board the ship? At first, he's just a common prisoner. Then he's given some special consideration by Lysias, or by Julius, when they landed and he was able to go into the city to receive care from his friends. Then he gives some advice that goes unheeded. Then he gives advice that is heeded. And Julius cuts the ropes to the lifeboat. And now the Apostle Paul is actually taking center stage in the middle of this crisis. And he begins to direct traffic. Okay, everybody, it's time for all of you to eat. And he just steps right up to the plate and he begins to give thanks to God for the provision that he's been given. And by the way, I hope that you guys do that. Do you do that before every meal? It's a Jewish custom. It should be a Christian custom. And it is a Christian custom. To give thanks to God before every meal. Do you do it in a restaurant? Even when you're alone? I hope you do. 
Not so that you can appear religious to people, not the schmarmy sort of sentimentality where you wait until the waitress comes to the table so you can show off your Christian faith, but just the, the serious giving of thanks to God for gratitude for even the small blessing of food. And men, I hope you lead your families in that practice, and I hope you do it with diligence and consistency to show to your children and to your wife that you recognize that every last element of your meal has been provided for by God. The other day we were sitting down to enjoy a meal as a family, and and uh, I got ready to pray, and, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, thank you for putting this food on our table. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. It was a little bit longer than that, but I mean, it was, that was my essence. And, and when I got done with the prayer... Aiden, my youngest daughter, kind of looked up with this perplexed look on her face, and she said, Dad, God didn't put the food on the table. Mommy did. That gave me an opportunity to explain to her, Mommy may have prepared the food, and Mommy may have actually put it onto the table, but it is only because God willed that we should have something to eat. And had He not willed that we have something to eat, there would have been nothing there to eat. But by His gracious provision, He has provided even this food. Now, of all the things that the Apostle Paul would give thanks for to God in the midst of all of this, isn't it ironic that he chooses a piece of bread? This is such a small thing, isn't it? How about, Lord, thank you for safe voyage. Thank you that this boat held together. Thank you for the skill of the crew that brought us to this point. Thank you that there is land just offshore. Thank you that daybreak is only in a few hours and that we're going to be able to see this. Thank you for fulfilling your promise. Thank you for giving us safety. All of those things. And it's not that the Apostle Paul and the others were not thanking God for those things. But listen, the Apostle Paul holds up a piece of bread in the midst of all of this and says, here, you may think this is a small blessing, but let's thank God even for this. In all things, he gives thanks. I think the Apostle Paul was thankful for all of that. But he didn't forget in the midst of all of that that even the smallest joy comes from his hand. Even the smallest blessing comes from the hand of God because every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so he gives thanks. Look what happens next. He took the bread and he gave thanks to God. In the presence of all of them, he broke it. All of them were encouraged. They also took food. All of them were encouraged and they took food. Isn't that interesting? What what were they encouraged about? Here they see in the Apostle Paul confidence, courage, trust, belief, a calm demeanor in the midst of the storm. They've got maybe three, four, maybe five or six hours before day breaks. And they can't see where they're going. They can't navigate. They don't know if they're moving or not. And the Apostle Paul is giving thanks because he has this absolute confidence. He believes God that it's going to turn out exactly as God has said. There's not a shadow of doubt in him whatsoever. No double-mindedness, no questioning at all. He knows that everything is under the providence and the sovereign hand of God, that all 276 people are going to be saved, and he thanks God in the presence of all of them, and all of them kind of, yeah, it sort of picks up. They were encouraged. Now what had happened before this? They were despairing. And all hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. You ever notice how cynicism and criticism and negativism and bad attitudes are contagious. They spread like a cancer. On a boat of 276 people, how many people does it take to eventually get everybody depressed? It takes one guy. That's all it takes. Have you ever noticed how one person with a critical spirit, a negative attitude, or a, or an axe to grind can absolutely destroy a church, destroy a group of people, destroy a family and a home? One person who all they see is the negative of everything? You notice how that happens? It's a cancer. And it spreads, and it spreads quickly. 
And here the Apostle Paul becomes a light and everybody's encouraged. Because encouragement spreads just as quickly. A good attitude spreads just as quickly. And the Apostle Paul is the one that starts that. Everybody's encouraged. They take food. And the next thing they do, they go down into the hole of the ship. And Luke says they begin to cast out all the grain, getting out all the cargo. Now, why are they doing that? Listen, for the first time in 14 days, they have hope of being saved. And they're lightening the ship because they, when they know that when the day breaks, they're going to cut the ropes to the anchor and they're going to steer toward land and they're all going to make it to land safe and sound. Now, why does the Apostle Paul give them food? And how is this an act? Uh, uh, how is this something that he does as an act of his faith? The Apostle Paul is giving them food because for 14 days they've been without food and they've taken nothing. And the people are weak, they're discouraged, they're down, and the Apostle Paul begins to prepare them for this last hurdle. They have one more hurdle to get over. And what is that hurdle? That last hurdle that they have to get over is to somehow get from that ship when it begins to break up to shore in the daylight. Some of them are going to swim the whole distance. Some of them are going to grab pieces of wood or or pieces of tackle and they're going to float to shore and try and make it to shore. All 276 of them are going to make it. But the Apostle Paul knows the promise of God, now follow this backwards, the promise of God is that 276 people are going to be saved. That means that all 276 people are going to have to get from this ship to the shore. And in order to do that, they're going to have to be strengthened. And they were in no condition whatsoever to jettison the wheat or to do anything after 14 days without food. So the Apostle Paul, knowing that they needed to be strengthened in order to make the swim, in order to fulfill the promise of God, gives them food. He is preparing the passengers. He is giving them hope, giving them encouragement, giving them the sustenance and saying, look, we've got one last hurdle. Take and eat. This is for your preservation. You're going to need this in order to get to shore. That is the sovereignty of God and human means once again. You remember back in Acts chapter 23 when the Apostle Paul was given the promise by Jesus. You've testified for my cause of Jerusalem. You're going to testify for me in Rome. Next morning he woke up and he got this visitor. It wasn't a bearer of good news. It was his nephew saying, look, there's a plot of 40 men who have vowed to neither eat nor drink until they have killed you. What did the Apostle Paul do? Did he sit on his hands and say, okay, well, this will be interesting to see what the Lord does here because I've got a promise from God that I'm going to Rome. I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to let the Lord fulfill his promise. I'm going to do nothing. Paul didn't do that, did he? Paul said, the promise of God is that I'm going to go to Rome. And here is a hurdle that I've got to get over. So he takes his nephew and he says, I want you to go talk to Lysias. Tell him about the plot. Make it known to the Roman guard, the centurion who's in charge of Paul's custody. And the nephew went and did that. And lo and behold, Paul was delivered. Friends, there is the sovereign providence of God and there is the means by which God accomplishes His determined end. And that means most of the time is through you and I. You pray that somebody's need would be met. That somebody's need would be met because they're without something and you know that they have a need. And you pray that God would meet that need. And then you say, Amen. And you look at yourself and you say, Yeah, I might have the means to meet that need. And then you give to that individual and become the answer to your own prayer. Is that a lack of faith? No, that's not a lack of faith. That is faith in action. You have a confidence that God will do what He said He will do, and you employ yourself to do the very thing that He has said is going to come to pass. I have every confidence in the world that all of the elect will be saved, and so you preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and do everything you can to draw them in. Why? Because God's end is going to be accomplished, and He's going to use you and I to accomplish that means. God will provide for our needs. And so when you see somebody in need, you become the means through the provision whereby God accomplishes the end result through your work and through your labor. Matthew Henry puts it this way, Duty is ours, events are God's. And we do not trust God, but tempt Him when we say, we put ourselves under His protection, 
And then we do not use the proper means such as are within our power for our own preservation. Get that? It's not, temp- it's not trusting God, but tempting God to say, I'm going to trust him to protect me. And then you take a pistol, you put one, one slug in it, and you play Russian roulette. Spin the chamber, put it up your head, click. I'm trusting God. No, you're not. You're tempting God. It's not trusting God, but tempting God to say, I'm, I'm going to trust him to protect me. And so I'm going to go do whatever I want to do because he knows the, he knows the number of days that are appointed for me and not one of them can, not a hair can fall from my head except he determines it be so. So I'm just going to stop eating because God will sustain me. He's promised to sustain me. He's promised to provide all my needs. So I'm not going to eat or drink anything. Now how do we know that God accomplishes the end? He does through so, does so through what? The means. The God ordained means. And that's what Paul's recognizing. God has given to him a promise. All 276 are going to be saved. And you're going to Rome. Paul says, okay, time to get to work. Keep the sailors on board the ship. We know that that has to happen for us to get to shore. And we know that we're going to have to be strengthened and sustained. We're going to have to have energy to make this, to jump this last hurdle and to make this swim from the ship to the shore. Because God works through the means. Faith, friend, is not passive resignation. It's not sitting on your hands saying, well, I'm going to see how the promise of God works out. Faith is jumping into action and saying, I'm going to be the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign and revealed will and to take part in that and to take place in that. Now next week we'll see how this fated voyage comes to an end and we'll draw some conclusions from all of chapter 27. We're going to finish up chapter 27 with only four messages. I think that's the fastest we've ever gone through a chapter in all of the book of Acts and it won't be long and I'll be saying turn to the book of Acts chapter 28. Won't that be fun? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. We thank you for your constant watch, your constant care, and your constant provision for us. We know that nothing can happen to us except you sovereignly allow it to happen, and your grace is extended to us to deal with it when it happens. We thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that you have appointed us to be the means by which you would accomplish your will. Thank you for giving us a part in your plan of salvation and in your work in this world. And we ask, God, that you would so strengthen us to be an encouragement to those who are around us that we may, through the grace that you give us, be a light to them and draw them to the Savior, that they may see in us that faith, that confident, obedient trust in you and in your plan in our lives, and that they may come to know the Savior through that. We ask this to his glory and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.